This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Just because you donate does not mean you dictate. The decision individual unions make is one for them. I've asked John to do what is best for everyone and to stand down. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Party Room. I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And I'm Patricia Carvelis from RN Drive, but you can call me PK. Okay, and we had a tiny little wee break, PK. In the meantime, unions in Victoria have started really arcing up and causing ructions nationally for the Labor Party, really, and, and for their own movement. There's actually in politics nothing quite so spectacular, is there, than a full-blooded split in the Labor movement. Some of the rhetoric that can fly around can get pretty colourful. And I'm talking in this latest round about John Setka and the CFMEU. So let's just have a recap for those listening who maybe aren't across all of the detail just about what this story is, given we had that break and it was all unfolding, continues to unfold. So there were reports that surfaced that at a meeting of the CFMEU's national executive, John Setka, who is the head of the Victorian branch of the CFMEU Construction Division, blamed Rosie Batty's advocacy for a lack of men's rights or a reduction in men's rights in issues around domestic violence. Now, he has contested the comment saying he didn't he didn't denigrate Rosie Bashy. And, well, I think everyone agrees it wasn't about denigrating Rosie mm. Bashy and that's why there's been a bit of a what did he really say? Well, we don't know unless we're in the room. But clearly he mentioned the name Rosie Bashy talked about a reduction of men's rights, and this this kind of largely isn't a contested area. He says it wasn't about denigrating her, so much so actually that even Sally McManus, the ACTU secretary, accepts that, that he wasn't trying to denigrate Rosie Batty. But either way, it was about this concept of, you know, fewer rights for men. So this then became quite a big story, right? Anthony Albanese intervenes and says he will push for John Setka's Labor membership to be revoked. John Secca, not a happy man in relation to this, says that he's going to challenge being revoked, even legally, and really starts attacking uh, Anthony Albanese for responding to what, what he says is, you know, false claims. He's been stitched mm. up. That's what he believes. Now, pressure starts building on John Secca. ACTU boss Sally McManus is overseas, returns to the country literally like in an emergency situation to address growing union concerns that John Secca won't stand down, meets with him and says, you need to stand down for the good of the movement. No one is bigger than the movement is the language she used. He says, uh-uh, my membership decides whether I'm here. And now, as this has unfolded, the CFMEU has officially met, put out a statement saying they stand by him. It's gotten so ugly, Fran, that even the ETU, they're another union backing CFMEU boss um, John Setka, they say they want to audit ALP MPs, state and federal for any domestic violence history as payback. It is ugly. It's really getting out of hand before that threat, the threat from some of the unions in Victoria and the Victorian left unions, and these are major unions, big, powerful unions, have, you know, threatened to say, oh, well, all bets are off. We're going to start, you know, trying to sign up members from all your different areas too. So that's like a, a turf war amongst the unions, bad enough. And now this threat of auditing all MPs, Labor MPs, who might have, you know, allegations of uh, domestic violence against them. This is getting very nasty and quite out of hand. And this all comes in the context of the fact that, you know, you mentioned that the Labor executive, national executive, will presumably, 
in the first week of June ratify Anthony Albanese's demand that, you know, there's no place for uh, John Setka in the party he leads. Before then, John Setka will go to court on, on sort of other issues. So this is got so many elements to it. It's kind of really combustible, isn't it? Absolutely. And if you look at the reasons they all cite, um, Sally McManus said she accepts that he didn't say this about Rosie Batty, mm. but says that there are a range of issues leading to this. John Setka has confirmed he intends to plead guilty in court to using a carriage service to harass a woman. That is actually the real reason many people are concerned. They say if he intends to plead guilty, well, hang on a minute, how can he still be the leader of the union? Of a union movement that supports action against domestic violence. That's right, and wants to take a strong stand. Now, they've got an answer to this now, the CFMU. They say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. We support him. And this is extraordinary. We support him because he was directly elected by the members. So this seems to be their line in the sand that no one, not even the ACTU boss, and again, another union now, the Plumbers Union, has come out against Sally McManus, who you'd have to say enjoyed such widespread, broad support in her role as secretary of the ACTU. Well, now they're saying, well, the jury's out on Sally McManus because the the red line, it would seem, for these unions, this is how they're articulating it anyway and defending John Setka, is that the union positions are elected by the members and the members' power to hire or fire is therefore absolutely irrefutable. The CFMEU saying you're not going to get our donations, Labor. I think the way that the Labor Party has responded to this, hats off, you've got to give them credit. Here's Anthony Albanese on that. No, I'm worried about just doing the right thing, Patricia. Simple as that. My decision on Mr Setka is based upon his long history of uh, bringing the Labor Party into disrepute. And this was a you know pretty risky strategy uh, by Anthony Albanese, PK, but his colleagues have come in right behind him. We shouldn't be worried. We should be angry. I mean, when I saw those reports today, I couldn't believe it. You know, just because you donate does not mean you dictate. It's important to remember, Fran, that the typical unionist today is a woman working in health or education. The union movement is much bigger than the interests of one person. Because, PK, what a lot of the MPs and some others in the union movement feel is that John Setka, as secretary of the semi-FMEU in Victoria, has form. That's really why they're, you know, going so hard on this now, I think. That's right. And actually, Anthony Albanese has made it clear that he thinks this guy's had issues for a long time. Uh, And clearly that this has been, he has been a massive distraction for the Labor Party. As one senior Labor Party person put it to me, You know what this is about? We no longer want to defend him. We no longer want to own this. This is not our problem. We don't want to answer questions on this man anymore. And because if you just go through Hansard, people, if you go through it, you'll see that John Secker's name is, you know, readily used, Mm. obviously over industrial issues as well, not just these issues, but this is the line in the sand issue. Now, this view that John Secker should stand down, is backed by 13 unions. They want him to resign as uh, the leader of the Victorian CFMMEU. So it has strong support, but ultimately, as you were saying, Fran, you know, it's it's up to... They can't do anything, but it just mm. shows a huge split in the Labor movement. And if you look at where that split, those fault lines exist, 
There is a gendered story there too. It's not the entire story. It's part of the story. A lot of the unions saying he should stand down are more feminised industries. And we're seeing a really muscular response from unions like the ETU, male-dominated, the CFMEU, male-dominated. And if you if you talk to people in the ALP, they say this is this is this is a bigger concern. We're seeing here essentially, as far as I can see it, a, a very worrying trend of uh, the rise of kind of a tone of the men's rights movement here, the union movement, really, coming to his defence, you know, and I've had private briefings from people, they won't go on the record, but basically defending him and saying this is a stitch up, this has all been exaggerated. Mm. I don't know. I, I find it a little alarming myself. PK, talking about sort of splits and, and mending splits, on the other side of the political coin, there's a bit of that going on. Senator Cory Bernardi has been ruminating publicly about the possibility of him rejoining the Liberal Party. And just to remind people, in 2017, when Malcolm Turnbull ran the Liberal Party, remember that? Cory Bernardi was not really happy with the direction of the government on some issues. He's essentially much more conservative than Malcolm Turnbull. He quit the party. He set up his new party. It's called the Australian Conservatives. In theory, that was a blow to the government because they lost a number in the Senate. In reality, he mostly votes with the government anyway. But it was a problem for the government because it took away some of the base, it took away some of the supporters for the Liberal Party, particularly in Cory Bernardi's home state of South Australia. Now, two years on, Cory Bernardi, here he is speaking to Chris Kenny on Sky News, maybe having a change of heart. I have to say, though, I, I do think Scott Morrison has claimed a lot of the territory which was very fertile for the Australian Conservatives. He's a person of faith, he's a person of belief, he's a relentless campaigner. Maybe you've done your job, values. Corey Bernardi. Maybe you've, done what you've, maybe, he, maybe you've achieved what you set out to do uh, when you broke away and maybe you could get back on, door, back on board a, a Liberal Party led by Scott Morrison. Oh, see, so you're now leading me uh, down a path that perhaps I, I'm not willing to go today, Chris. But I did say when I left the party that um, the, my greatest hope that I would be redundant. And, you know, over the last month or so, I've been openly to thinking and canvassing what my role will be in politics. I still enjoy it. I still like it very much. But I do want to see this government succeed. So I'll think about to how best I can do that. What's it all about? Well, maybe he's feels he's done his job, as Chris Kenny was leading him there, to say maybe he's just lonely, not having a party room to sit with, or maybe, PK, he faces re-election in three years' time and he won't get a quota to be re-elected if he runs as the Australian Conservatives, where he'd have a much better shot doing that if he's on the Liberal Party ticket, no doubt about that. Look, I've uh, made a couple of calls on this issue, Fran, because I'm thinking, really? They're going to take him back? So he quits? He rats on the party? Starts his own party, has to face re-election, clearly considering coming back to the Liberal Party, would like to come back. I spoke with Jim Mullen. Um, he's no longer going to be a senator. <laughs> he said we would welcome, I think we should welcome him with open arms. Now, think about this. What is the benefit for the Liberal Party? If he votes with them anyway, right? Well, they've got the vote mostly. And the other parties, the number one spot is going to go to Simon Birmingham, who is a moderate Number two spot, as it turns out, always by amazing, you know, apparently no factions in the Liberal Party would go to a Conservative, right? Why would the Conservatives in South Australia, young, ambitious Conservatives, surrender their potential angling for that position for Cory Bernardi? 
They might not, but that might what be a negotiation you? for further down the track. It depends what kind of guarantees Corbinati gets from Scott Morrison because at the moment Scott Morrison needs extra votes in the Senate. They need the crossbench. They can't get there by themselves. So even if Corbinati is mostly a yes, there still needs to be a negotiation that goes on. He still wields some leverage. He might be able to extract things from the government that they don't necessarily want to give while they're doing all these horse trading with others like Centre Alliance or One Nation or Jackie Lambie who's coming in. So just makes it simpler on that front. They can rely on that vote if he's in their party. But also, as I mentioned earlier, Australian Conservatives runs for elections. That means it has people who used to be Liberal Party supporters, most of them, from the Liberal Party base who are, you know, running around on election day handing out how to vote cards, who might be doing some fundraising. So it's depleted the resources a bit. Now, Simon Birmingham in South Australia, who's a moderate, who is no friend of Cory Bernardi, I think they're factional kind of enemies. I'm sure he wouldn't be so keen on the idea, but I, I can see why Scott Morrison might go for this. There's going to be a little power wrangle around this, I would Ooh, imagine. Oh, yeah. Watch this unfold. Now, the Prime Minister's been away on a family holiday this week, so a lot of these issues are on pause. That's literally on pause. We're going to pause too because we've got to bring in our guest. <laughs> Phil Curry, political editor with Australian Financial Review. Welcome back to the party room, Phil. Thanks for having me back. Let's turn our gaze on the government, if we can, for a minute. Mm. The, the Coalition reckons they have a mandate for their $158 billion tax plan, all three stages. Where is this at, Phil? Look, I reckon they do have a mandate, but, you know... For I, the I was whole just, thing? I just, well, yeah, they t- I mean, look, I, I was just observing um, to myself... Uh, before I came on. <laughs> I wish I'd been there for that. Imagine if Labor had won the election a month ago. They'd be saying exactly the same thing, wouldn't they? We yeah, have a man for our policies. And the coalition would be saying exactly exactly the same thing. No, you don't. <laughs> you know? And I, know, I noticed how Anthony Albanese said this week, we have to respect the views of the 48.5% who didn't vote for the coalition. Mm. So we sort of go through this... This little routine every every uh, every sort of aftermath of each election, don't we? Um, and where the the losers and the vanquished say, no, you don't have a mandate. Understandably, the government is saying they have one. Um, and look, I think they had such a simple agenda. I think they almost have a case, don't they? They only took one thing to the election, and that was the tax cuts, and that played into the whole anti-aspirational message that backfired so much on Labor. So um, I reckon they're in a fairly strong position to argue, but that doesn't really amount to anything, does it? We do go through this whole mandate dance every election. You're right about that. Mm. Um, But there's two things here. I mean, Albo told PK on RN Drive this week that... Um, well, the government actually didn't talk about their tax plan because all they talked about was Labor's policies and, well, you know, that's probably a stretch, I think. You're right, Mm. this was the the big central thing the government had. But does a mandate really liberate you from all other arguments about economic responsibility? I mean, I think there's something to the argument that the third tier, which doesn't come in till 2024, which is after not just the next election, but almost the, but after the next one too, isn't it? I think, yeah. You know, it's a long way off. The economy is heading into some headwinds. That's what the government, the Reserve Bank are telling us. Should we really be betting in a $95 billion tax cut, much of which, fair whack of which goes to the highest earners, locking that in so many years hence? We need to have, uh, we need to have a debate, don't we, about economic responsibility or does the mandate trump that? Look, I don't know, short answer, but um, the point is it is actually it is, it is more than a tax cut package, it's a reform package, you know, yeah, flattening true. the rates and so forth. 
But it didn't stop Labor locking uh, future governments into 10 years spending on education. On God's True. It didn't stop them spend, locking in those, those massive hospital deals on the NDIS and stuff like that. Yeah, that's so right. That's what I mean. It's just whenever you're the winner or the loser, suddenly the rules change. And we're just seeing, I think, just a classic example of the rules changing again. I mean... What Labor, I guess, is trying to do is, is is govern from opposition now. And don't don't sort of think this is a unanimous view in Labor. They are very split on this. There's a lot of people in Labor who think should wave these things through for various reasons. One is, you know, as one person said to me, Jimmy, we've we got to stop trying to save this mob from themselves. You know, if the, if the economy goes down the gurgler and, and these tax cuts suddenly prove unaffordable, well, that'll be their problem, not ours, you know, and, and that could only help Labor at subsequent elections. So... Yeah, they may have to choose between their surplus and their tax cuts, for example. So, I mean, I know that's not an economically responsible view, but I mean, the government's sort of laid it out there. They've said, look, we can afford these. It's all budgeted over the over the medium term, be it on mm. their head if, if, it, if it can't be. They claim there's a, an economic growth element to it. Um, others dispute that. I mean, what we're seeing now is, is Labor sort of changing its reasons for opposing it. I mean, they opposed it during the election campaign on two grounds, one on you know the, the, the affordability, the long-term affordability, which I think is a valid point, but the other one is a was the top end of town thing. They post stage three on the basis of class. Now they've dropped that because they got you know they got it handed to them on a plate during the election, and so they're now sort of saying, oh, it's not that we're opposed to giving rich people a tax cut. It's just the, the, the data shows that they don't actually, they don't spend it, so there's no economic dividend. Yeah, they tend to save it or something, which again is highly contestable. So they're changing their reasoning as well. So I, I can just see them getting caught up in all sorts of tied up in all sorts of knots over this. To be honest, um, and, yeah. And you're talking about the dissent and the people inside mm. who go wave it through. Now we're even getting people on the record. Peter Khalil has come mm. on the record in the Herald Sun and said vote the whole thing through. So that's quite something, isn't it? That's right. And look, there's a, there's a few others of that view. My, 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 um, my, my hunch is that when they actually get around to sorting out this position on this, they'll adopt the first two stages of the tax cuts. That's the ones that have already been legislated and the ones that haven't been legislated. So that, that'll look after people up to about 120,000 and then they'll block or stay opposed to stages three, both the bit that was legislated and, and the bit that hasn't been legislated. So that will then put them in a position, though, of having to go to the next election promising to revoke already legislated tax cuts because half of stage three has already been legislated. So it doesn't get rid of the issue for them. So, in other words, the government will run for the next three years saying Labor opposes tax cuts and Labor will have to be prepared to you know, fight that well, fight for another three years. I mean, the government, there's a good chance they'll get it through ultimately with the crossbench I, th- anyway. I think they will. I think they'll get it through the crossbench. I think and they, they, I think... But, but, that, but that will still present Labor with a, are you going to revoke it if you win the election? Phil, do you think we'll ever get an answer to the question that Jim Chalmers, the shadow treasurer, has written to Josh Frydenberg again about how much the final tranche of the tax cuts, the bit that comes in after that reform, as you say, after 2024... Mm will actually hand back to people earning over $200,000. Over 180. Yeah, 180. Yeah, over $180,000. Yeah. So what, that's called a distribution. Do you think we'll ever get that answer? Because the government no, must know no. that. Well, they do, but they, I, sp- I spoke to very senior people in government only about this in the last 24 hours, and they say, well, we're just not going to do it because it's not – they just don't think it's necessary. It's not It's not warranted. I mean, this person said, what are we going to do next? How much men get, how much women get, how much Indigenous people get, non-Indigenous people, stuff like that. It's, it, they, they oh, just don't, yeah, but oh, no, there that, is that's an argument, isn't there? Well the, well, the argument they is They just don't want to say asking, that the more wealthy yeah. are going to get 
a of big course. whack of money. Well, of course. If you look at the modelling that's been done independently by the Australia Institute, which you note hasn't been disputed by the government, of the stage three, uh, which is this, this this when you get a 30% rate between incomes of forty five and 200000 that's going to cost $95 billion. Now, the, the, mm. the government's given us that number, but the, mm. the Australia Institute estimates of that $95, 33000000000 billion will go to people currently earning over 180. So that's not a scary number. I mean, it's a one-third of stage three goes to the higher end. The government's not disputing that. But you have to then ask yourself, why is Labor demanding this information? Is it because they want to prosecute this this politics of envy thing again? Or is it because they want to run this argument that that $33 billion won't go into the economy or just be, you know, hoarded in savings and so forth? Yeah. I, I think Come I think both, I, I can't see why the government doesn't just say, yeah, that's how much it is. You know, because they're not scared of it. So why they, they should say, yeah, that's about right. Mm. But I think both, it's it's troublesome for both sides now that asking for that analysis um, because as long as Labor keeps sort of making that a focus, how much the so-called rich are getting, then it leaves itself exposed to that, that, top, that top end of town thing. Mm. Now, let's move to another topic which is mm. dominating the week and it's going to continue to, I think. And it all... It's all in the kind of home affairs immigration space. Mm. It started on Insiders this Sunday. Annabelle Crabb interviewed Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton. You're on the couch, so you know all about it, mm. Phil. He said security company Paladin's contract would likely be extended, and that's despite the fact that the $423 million contract with the security company is being investigated by the Auditor General. The likely arrangement is uh, that there will be a continuation, but I'm, I'm not going to comment when the department's in the process of, of contract discussions, negotiations, etc. Now, the PNG government said, hang on a minute, uh, we think the contract should go to a PNG company. So this is getting kind of difficult, that particular issue, isn't it, Phil? Oh, very much so. I mean, that was on Sunday and then we woke to the news on Monday morning that the PNG government said no to Paladin. So it made the minister look like he did, or he, either he or his department doesn't know what's going on. Or, yeah. Uh, I mean, at a minimum, I mean, it's just a messy thing. And then we've had a raft of stories in the in our paper this week in the Financial Review sort of further poking holes in that whole Paladin thing and, and the authenticity of it. So that's sort of one problem, I guess. I think it sort of points to a larger problem with PNG and Manus Island is that the PNG government really does want those people off there. And they're not copying this sort of, um, you know, uh, this this sort of rationale from the Australian government that it's a it's a Papua New Guinea, you know, issue. So mm. We put them there. We, we're paying for them. You know, we gave them money to to stay there, but they clearly you know, they clearly don't want anything to do with it anymore, and they keep calling for something to be done about the people on that, that island yeah. to be moved. And the government really doesn't have a solution for that, and that's the ongoing no. problem, really. And that feeds into this other issue that's bouncing back again. The government seems to want to bring back the the issue of the Medivac bills. Remember those, mm. the bill that was passed in just in February, um, and Peter Dutton is really arced up about this again. He says we're going to repeal it because they're weakening our border protection. But, you know, just four months ago, I think there was a fair bit of support for the crossbench on this. Only 30 people have come to Australia under this Medivac legislation. Um, you know, is it really, well, for a start, is it too early to say whether they're a danger to our national security? And is it really in the government's interest to get into this again? It's a good question, Fran, because they're sort of carrying on like, you know, they're a first-term government or we're close to an election. They're actually in their third term now. If, if the boats start coming, it's their problem. The trouble with the Medivac bill from the government's perspective is they cried wolf back in February. You know, they said, oh, there are going to be hundreds of people are going to come. There'll be, you know, murderers and all sorts of ne'er-do-wells flooding into our country on the back of this bill if it passes. You know, we saw Morrison 
you know, he went up to um, Christmas Island and reopened it and an exorbitant amount of money was wasted. And, Huge um, and amount of money. We, yeah, and at the end of the day, nothing happened. Now, what's happened since then? We've seen this federal court decision. That was bought by, by an asylum seeker on the basis. So what that court decision means is that the doctors, when they you know, approve someone coming in for medical treatment, they don't actually have to talk to the patient. They can just study their medical records. Now, that's been made necessary because the Nauruan government has banned teleconferencing. Mm. So it, it's it's a product of that. It's not like, you know, some, some massive weakening. It's a way to get around that. So... We don't know. Look, if suddenly you know, 800 boats hove into view in the next few days, well, clearly there must be a cause and effect. But I think from a credibility point of view, the government is starting a long way back on this because it cried wolf so loudly in February. And you know, they're trying to use this to also put pressure on Labor to support mm. repeal. Peter Dutton suggesting that Labor was thinking of it. The Shadow Home Affairs Minister, Christina Keneally, is not giving any indication that they're going to change no. that position. And there's a reason for that. Not only, obviously, they think it's right, but it was actually Anthony Albanese, when Bill Shorten was the leader, was quite active in pushing to ensure that Labor did support this when Labor was going mm. wobbly. Yeah, he was the he was the spine stiffener, absolutely, on this. So, look, if, if it all turns to custard, then I suspect Labor may rethink. But I don't think, apart from the warnings from the minister, there's any indication yet that it will, So or has. Uh, I just love that you said the spine stiffener. What a, <laughs> it's probably the best thing that's happened to me for a while. Thank you, Phil. All right. So, yeah, Labor's going to be, stick on that one. Look, just briefly yeah. with you, Phil, if mm. we can, we already discussed mm. that at the beginning of the podcast, but this this internal war in the Labor movement, uh, the mm. Labor Party having to deal with it too over John Secker. Now, a meeting on Wednesday, we're recording this Thursday morning, but a meeting on Wednesday of the national executives of the CFWMEU's construction division resolved essentially to back John Secker, which is extraordinary. He's now mm. safe as houses, uh, as far as I can see, from that, that union, even though it's at odds with what Sally McManus and lots of other unions want. How can this end well? I can't see it ending well, uh, Patricia. I mean, <laughs> Albanese sparked all this by booting Secker out of the Labor Party, and that will happen. And I think Labor themselves will move on. But in its wake is this almighty blue in the movement where you've essentially got the militant left unions versus the rest. Look, I noticed that thing you, you mentioned, the CFWMEU's you know, national executive decision was sort of very specific in terms of did John Secker say something nasty about Rosie Batty or not. But don't forget, in about a week's time, there's going to be that court hearing to which Setker has said he will plead guilty to. So I just sort of wonder, are these people backing him in now, are they still going to be standing beside him then? Well, I, mean, I think they're uh, indicating now that they are because he said mm. he will plead guilty to harassing a woman using a carriage mm. service, right? So mm. he said that. It obviously has to mm. happen still. But he yeah. said that and they've made this decision knowing he's, he's going to do that. And, and be that on the heads of those who back him in. I mean, what message are they sending? Yeah, If he were a politician or, or a chief executive officer or someone like that, there'd be a lot of pressure and it'd have to, it'd have to disappear from a leadership position. So if the, if the union movement wants to send that message or that element of the union movement want to send that message, then be it on their heads. Talking about Labor and tensions, Joel Fitzgibbon, long-time Labor mm. frontbencher, it wants to break loose from the unity straitjacket of the shortened years. He said mm. publicly in the Oz he wants more freedom to express in public views at odds with Labor policy. And to back that up, he points out the mileage that George Christensen, the LMP's George Christensen, got from going rogue and calling for things like a coal-fired power station. You know, if you think about it, there were plenty of reasons why George Christensen might have got a whack from his electorate. Instead, he got a massive boost. He did, but he, look, I, look, I, I can understand where Fitzgibbon's coming from. They had this ironclad 
allowed unity during the shortened years, and it was at the end of the day, it actually didn't help them. <laughs> it didn't. I mean, it was a big attribute they had all the way through, but it didn't get them over the line. But I think it's always a balance these things, isn't it? What, what what's you know between disunity and and, and and you know speaking out. I think you should have more latitude in opposition to do it than in government. Christensen, you know, he, I mean, he's an extraordinarily selfish character. He put himself before the government on numerous occasions, and you might note. He, he and others of his ilk were, were overlooked, you know, in, in, in the front bench reshuffle and everything for, for that reason. I think, you know, Joel has a point. You know, I, I wonder if they'd had a bit more sort of looseness around them, how many, a few people might have fired up on franking credits, for example. There was a lot of people who were concerned about that, but everyone bit their lip. And this is a collective loss by Labor, there's no doubt about it. They they're all wear this, that's right. They are, and that, that explains why they're all still so unified even. I mean, we, Peter Khalil speaking out on tax cuts is the first sort of breakout. It almost feels like they need a bit of an eruption just to cathart, you know, and, and get a bit of this off their chest. <laughs> it's, it's still it's still a bit unhealthy that they're all bottling this in, you know. But um, but oh, look, I, I see no problem with the backbencher every now and then piping up um, and, and, and and taking a different point of view, especially in opposition. I think it's sort of healthy for a party and. Um, it may sort of temper some policy decisions they may take to the next election um, and it may help them last time, to be honest. Phil, always excellent Mm. to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. Okay, that's it from us. Until next week, rate, review and subscribe and tell your friends. And we do want to reinstate Question Time, friends. It's not gone away, so please send us in your questions. You can tweet them to us using hashtag thepartyroom or email thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And don't forget, you can also send us in your real actual voice, use asking the question with your voice via a voice memo. So we love those. So get your questions flowing in. That's it from us. See you, Fran. See you, PK. Having power. I've answered the question the way I choose to answer the question. Getting what you want. This can provide endless possibilities. It can be positive. There will be no cover. Or negative. When an individual portfolio is blowing up, money, position. I'm a fixer, Madam Speaker. Influence. Who do you think you are? Power in Australia. How does it work? Who has it? How is it constrained? Never again. We go to the top and begin in Canberra. Who runs this place? Get it now, wherever you find your podcasts or on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.